So many people know about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. I think you can see this all the time. Christ remains a central, lasting figure in our culture. I mean, if you look at the Easter season of 2015, National Geographic's ran a special of Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. And as they aired this special, it aired to 3.7 million viewers, Nat Geo's highest ratings in their history. That same year, Google announced that searches for Jesus Christ claimed, uh, or climbed 53% around Easter time. People are interested in Jesus. But the question is, do they know who Jesus is? David Kinneman, he's the president of Barna Group, directed a national survey that reviewed the popular beliefs about Jesus. Here are some of the results that they found. One of the first studies indicated was asking the question, was Jesus a historical figure? 92% of people uh, believe that Jesus was a historical figure. And I've got to tell you, that actually makes me feel kind of good, you know, because if you don't believe Jesus is a historical figure, I don't think you really know much about history at all, do you? Now, the next question that they ask is, is Jesus God? This starts to grow less certain with people. If you look up there, you'll notice that 56% of all respondents did indeed say that Jesus is God. But one of the alarming trends is that the younger generations are growing less and less certain on that fact. Now here is a conundrum of sorts. Was Jesus sinless? Now the confusion grows even wider. Over half of Americans agree, either strongly or somewhat, that while Jesus was on earth, he was human and he committed sins. So he was God, but when he was human, he committed sins. Another question, have you made a commitment to Jesus? 62% of Americans who responded to this said that they have at some point or another committed to Jesus, have made that first step to become a Christian. And among those who have made the commitment to Jesus, there's a confusion on how does one get to heaven? 63% believe that they get to heaven because they've accepted Jesus. 15% have no idea why they're getting to heaven or if they are. And 20% believe that it has something to do with their good works. Kinnaman says this, There isn't much argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous, sometimes rancorous, debate. Now you have to ask yourself this question next. Does the question, who is Jesus, even matter? I mean, aren't we just squabbling over technicalities here? Uh, Isn't it just important that people have some kind of religious inclination or some kind of affinity towards Jesus? Isn't it true that there's more than one theological way to skin a cat? I don't think Jesus would let us say that kind of stuff. If you look at his own self-claims about himself, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He later on says in John's gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And probably one of his most um, famous self-claims is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. C.S. Lewis pointed out that many are willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but unwilling to accept him as God. Listen to how he responds to this assertion. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. Who is Jesus? That is the question you must answer. Everything depends on the way you answer this question. This is the point that Paul is going to make to us in the book of Colossians. So I hope you're there. We're going to begin by looking at several points in the first eight verses of this book. The first point we're going to see in the first two verses is that it's all about Jesus. Listen to how Paul opens up this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae, grace to you in peace from God our Father. Now, whenever you are looking at one of these little letters in the New Testament, they are called epistles. So this is an epistle from Paul to the church of Colossae. Epistles were letters from the apostles to local churches, giving them instruction and how they should live their life and what they should know about God. Anytime that you open up a letter, it's important to ask a couple of questions, isn't it? Who wrote the letter? To whom are they writing it to? And why did they write this letter? So let's ask these questions of this epistle. The first question is, who wrote the letter? And we see right there from the start, it's the Apostle Paul with his mentee, Timothy. Maybe you know a little bit about Paul's story, but if you don't, I'll give you a little background on Paul. Uh, The first time that you meet Paul is actually in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. Now, in Acts, he is referred to by his Hebrew name, Saul. And he's kind of a bad dude. Uh, The first interaction you see with him, he's holding the coats of those who are going to stone the first martyr, Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then that he went on in Acts chapter 9 to ravage the church. Acts 9.1 says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But then something quite miraculous and quite life-changing happened. Paul met the exalted Jesus face to face. A brilliant light shined down upon him. A voice spoke from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there Saul was directed that he should go and wait for further direction from Jesus. Now, John Pollock in his book, The Apostle, captures what must have transpired in the heart of Saul as he sat in that house waiting to hear this further direction. 
He says, each hour that passed in blindness at the house of Judas, each day for the rest of his life, would unfold a little more of the breadth and length and height and depth. But the heart of the good news was sure, now and forever, the love of Christ, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul could instantly be treated as a man who had never sinned, be welcomed with love and trust. Forgiveness was a gift, entire and whole and perfect, because forgiveness was Christ himself. It would not be earned. No human merit could outweigh human sin. But in having Christ, Paul had all. He learned that day that life and salvation and joy and eternity and all of those things that he had so desired, it was all about Jesus. It was found in him. He had been zealous for God. He had been climbing the religious rungs of the ladder, but he came that day to find out that he was climbing up the wrong building. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And on that day when Paul was converted to the Lord Jesus, he was also told that he was called to be an apostle. Now notice that he says that of himself here in Colossians. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Isn't there a lot of confusion today about credibility? Who's credible? Who should I believe? Is a blogger um, as credible as an expert? Is this person biased? Is there a little bit of slant in the way that they're saying things? Those are important questions to ask, aren't they? If we're not asking those questions, then we're basically kind of running around blind and anything anyone says to anybody is something that we will just absorb within our own person. An apostle was a special office held by the disciples of Jesus, so the twelve, and also one who was untimely born, Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. Their calling was unique in church history. The apostles were invested with the authority to speak on Jesus' behalf so that when you're reading these epistles written by the apostles, it's as if Jesus is further instructing us through him. And so Paul here is essentially saying, when I write to you about Jesus, you can take my word for it. It's as if Jesus is speaking to you as I write to you. Now let's talk about to whom and why. So Colossae was once a great city, but no longer. You see a map on the screen there of Paul's um, interactions in his third missionary tour and then his imprisonment. Now, Ephesus was the city where Paul preached the gospel, and there was a man there who came and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesus, a very prominent city. Paul had stationed himself there for three years, and the gospel was going out all over the world through that. This guy, Epaphras, hears the gospel preached. He is so compelled by the truth of the gospel that he takes the gospel back home to this little podunk town called Colossae. And from there, the gospel goes out to other regions like Laodicea and Heropolis. Now, as he was ministering the gospel in Colossae, something went wrong, incredibly wrong. 
so wrong that Epaphras actually leaves Colossae and he goes on a search for Paul and he finds Paul most likely in a Roman prison at this time. And it says that he is his fellow prisoner. Now, what exactly had gone wrong? Well, this is the question that scholars ask about this book. Scholars speculate a few different things, but this is what makes interpreting an epistle so difficult because you're reading an occasional letter. It's written by someone you don't know to someone you don't know during a time that you didn't live in. It can make interpretation a little difficult. That's why things like context are so important as you look at these letters. You must read the letter from start to finish. You can't just take a verse out of a letter and say, oh, this is what it says. You have to read the whole story to get the story. You also have to look for internal clues. Let me give you a funny example of how confusing it can be if you don't understand the context of a letter. I'm going to drop you in the middle of a letter and you're going to try to guess what it's all about. Okay? I'll try to explain how this felt Imagine being 12 years old, a 12-year-old boy, Richard. Now imagine that it's Christmas morning and you've sat there with your final present to open. It's a big one, and you know what it is. It's that Goodman stereo that you picked out of the catalog, and Santa was going to bring it to you. Only you open the present and it's not there. It's your hamster, Richard. It's your hamster in the box and it's not breathing. That's how I felt when I peeled back the foil and I saw this. It's pretty gross looking, isn't it? This is an excerpt of one of the most widely published complaint letters of all time. It was written by an advertising executive, Oliver Oliver Beale, to business mogul Sir Richard Branson, founder of the Virgin Enterprise. Now, Beale was on Virgin Atlantic Airlines, And that was served to him. Rumor has it that um, Branson found that letter so funny and so well written that he actually offered Beale a job after having read the letter. See why context is important? If you don't know the full story, you don't understand what you're interacting with. Context in the Bible is king. Here's what most likely happened to Colossae. In Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Certain teachers had crept into this church and they were basically saying to them, yes, Jesus is important. He's a part of the path to finding God, but you also need to add additional things to Jesus in order to find salvation. Who were these people? They were syncretists. They were theological suit makers. I'll take a dash of Greek philosophy, a touch of mysticism, some Judaism. Let's add a big portion of Christianity. Uh, Combine it all together and poof, you have something that's better than Jesus. Only that's a bunch of hogwash. And Paul knew it. You can't get better than Jesus. Jesus is God's gift to mankind. He is his full and his final supply. He is all-sufficient because he is all-supreme. 
Just imagine this. Suppose someone gives you $100 trillion. Are you going to go back to them and say, thank you so much for this gift of money, but I don't really feel comfortable that this is going to sustain me through my life, so I'm going to go get a job and make minimum wage. Just in case? You're going to go get a job and make minimum wage just in case? You wouldn't do that. And so through the course of this letter, Paul just shoots cannonballs through this philosophy. And he begins here by identifying who these Christians are in verse 2. He calls them saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Saint meaning that they have been set apart by God in a special way. Not by a work that they have done, but by a work that God has done. To be called a faithful brother means that they have been brought into the family of God. And that special little phrase that you see there in Christ that is literally all over the epistles is a very important phrase too. R. Kent Hughes explains the phrase in Christ. He says in barest terms, it means that the Colossians and indeed all authentic believers partook of all that Christ had done, all that he was and is, and all that he would ever be. Now, the only criteria which our spiritual status can be measured in is in Christ and in Christ alone. That's what Paul's saying right from the beginning of this letter. It's all about Jesus. And you have him. What more could you need? And as he moves forward in verses 3 through 5, he's going to say to them, I know that you have Jesus because I'm seeing the products of spiritual fruit in your life. And that's the second point we'll see here this morning. Jesus' gospel produces fruit because Jesus' gospel changes us. Look there at verses 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he's seeing here the real stuff. It's not the fake stuff. The fake stuff is trying to earn your way to God. The fake stuff is saying that I'll believe in Jesus, but I'll also incorporate other things into my belief system. The fake stuff is saying that I have this kind of privatized relationship with God that never actually materializes itself in the world that I actually live in. But Paul is seeing the bona fide real thing here. The faith, hope, and love real thing. These have been called apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. So let's take a look at each one. Faith, the first fruit. Faith is the first fruit because it is only by faith that we are made right with God through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, but a person only receives the benefit of his sacrificial death by faith. It's pretty important that we'd understand what the word faith means. It's not some kind of jump into the darkness. It's not a crutch that people lean upon. Uh, All of those caricatures of faith are straw man arguments. They're kind of phony. No, faith, according to the Bible, is a a fact grounded in evidence. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith gives us assurance and certainty about unseen 
realities. You can kind of think of it like this. I'm sure that you've driven down roads that you've never driven down before, right? Now imagine that you're driving down a particular set of roads and it's incredibly windy and you're coming upon a bend and you can't see your way around the bend. What would you do? Would you come to a screeching halt and say to yourself, oh, I can't go on anymore. Uh, This road could end up in a 500-foot cliff and I could die. I don't know the people who made this road. If you're going to continue to go down the road, you're going to have to exercise what? Faith. But I don't think you'd stop. I really don't. In fact, I think that you would go forward because you know enough about how highways are built and the engineering that is involved with these highways that you would have enough evidence to say, I can move forward. That's what faith is. It's trusting in something based on substantial evidence that it is true. And see, here's another important factor about faith. Faith has no intrinsic value in itself. It only has, or it only derives its value from its object. Let me put it like this. You can believe that lions are cute, cuddly kittens until you're dead. And trust me, if you believe that and you go pet one, you will be dead. You can believe that there are magic kitchen fairies that come out at night and clean your kitchen for you, but in reality, that little fairy is your wife and she's salty with you right now. So do your job. When missionary John G. Payton was translating the Bible in the Outer Hebrides, he searched for the exact word to translate belief. Finally, he discovered it. The word meant to lean your whole weight upon. Now, I don't have faith that this pulpit's going to hold me up right now. But if the object is valuable, like Jesus, you can lean your whole weight upon him and he will hold you up. In fact, to lean your weight upon anything else according to the message of the Bible is to lead yourself to destruction. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this once by envisioning two men who were caught in a boat heading down a river, and they were caught in rapids headed towards a destructive waterfall. Some people seeing them from the shore threw a rope out to these men in the boat and one of the men grabbed hold of the valuable object. They grabbed hold of the rope and he was safely brought into shore. The other guy in the boat looked out and he saw a log that looked a lot more substantial than this rope over here. And so he jumped out and grabbed hold of that log. Only this guy was swept away to his destruction. You see, the rope represents a faith in Jesus Christ. You are anchored to the shore. You are fully secure in him. The log represents all the other things that people are clinging to in this world. Good works, false religion outside of Jesus, relying on yourself, believing that one day you'll stand before God and say to God, uh, because I'm just intrinsically a good person, you will let me into heaven. That leads only to ruin according to the biblical message. Now let's look at the second fruit. So faith is the first fruit. Love is the product of faith. Paul mentions that it is love for all the saints. You see, the idea here is that faith must work, and the greatest work of faith is love. Look at Galatians 5, 6. Paul talks about this. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. R. Kent Hughes comments, We have all met people who claimed to be good Christians, who were upstanding, honest, and orthodox, but unloving. They had a loveless goodness, an orthodoxy without charity, a questionable faith. These were the kind of men that Mark Twain had in mind when he said, he is a good man, but in the worst sort of way. Now, how do you know when someone is loving? I think you just do. I think you see it in the way that they act. Uh, When Chuck Colson was serving his prison sentence after the Watergate scandal, his newfound faith was severely tested. Not only was he in prison, but his wife was questioning this born-again thing that he had subscribed to. His son uh, was caught up in drug charges, and he was sitting alone in this cell, and he could do nothing about it. He was losing hope. But God meets us in our place of misery. A group of Christians in Washington, including Senator Hatfield, Hughes, and Quee, were praying for him. Senator Quee discovered an old law that allowed an innocent man to serve a prison term for another, and Quee volunteered to serve the remainder of Colson's term on his behalf. I mean, talk about an act of love. Now, Colson was so taken back by this display of love that he was reinvigorated in his faith. He told Kui, look, I will finish my term, but you have greatly refreshed me. This is an experience of love for all the saints. And this is the type of faith or love demonstrated that uh, re-energizes the faith of others. Now, how does this love come about in us? Look at verse 8 real quick with me. Paul tells the Colossians that their love is in who? The Spirit. Meaning it comes from the Spirit of God. Meaning that love is God-given. You can't will it into existence by grit or determination. That the Spirit of God produces the work of love through us. How does he do this? He does it in a couple of ways. He reminds us of Christ's love for us on the cross. He teaches us to think about others and to open up our eyes and to see Christ in other people. He works in us in such a way that he overcomes our bitterness and our unforgiveness towards, towards those who have hurt us or offended us. He produces this work of generosity in us. That's why in Galatians 5, Paul says that love is a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God produces love. Now let's look at the third virtue, hope, the life-giving spring. So I am interpreting this because he says in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you, so you've heard of your faith and love because of, that Paul is essentially saying that your faith and love are fed by the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Meaning hope feeds faith and love. It's like a life-giving spring. What is this hope that he's talking about that is feeding faith and love? It's a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. To be laid up means to store it, to hold it into reserve, to keep it safe for future use. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 14, doesn't he? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the hope that feeds faith and love. Now, I believe that people might come to faith uh, by a fear of hell. They might hear about the reality of hell and say, I need to turn to God. But I believe that this type of fear won't result in the faithful Christian life. I believe the faithful Christian life is produced by an addiction to heaven. You see, in 1 Peter 1.13, Peter tells us to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is commanding obsession here. He's saying, crave it. Fixate upon it. Don't stop thinking about it. Let the future glory with Jesus so captivate your mind that you won't tolerate distractions. You won't entertain diversions. Hebrews 11.16 tells us that those who lived by faith did so. Why? Because they desired a better country. They were looking for something that was better than here. Do something with me for a moment. I want you to think about the place that is most beautiful to you, that gives you serenity and peace and comfort. Uh, For me, I just discovered a place like this. I had the pleasure of taking a trip into northern Ontario to fish the Lake of the Woods. Now, this lake network is extensive. It's shared by Minnesota, Manitoba, Canada, and Ontario, Canada. It is an amazing natural feature, and it has an immense amount of fish, which is great. So this lake is 85 miles long, 56 miles wide at its widest point. It has an area of 1,727 miles. But that's not even the amazing thing about the lake. The Lake of the Woods has a shoreline of 25,000 miles. But that's not even the amazing thing. Because if you count the shoreline of the 14,525 islands that are in this lake, you now have 65,000 miles of shoreline. That's greater than Lake Superior. I mean, we are talking about fishermen's heaven here. And I went there. Sam Storms writes, As pleasant as it may be now, What we see and sense and savor in this life is an ephemeral shadow compared with the substance of God himself. Earthly joys are fragmented beams, but God is the sun. Earthly refreshment is at best a sipping from an intermittent spring, but God is the ocean. Without hope, we grow accustomed to the shadow. You don't Accept the inferior when you've had the superior, right? You don't want a flip phone after you've had the latest iPhone. You don't want to go back to direct TV or uh, go back to the rabbit ear antenna and the old black and white TV that occasionally gave you the, the channel that you wanted to watch when you've had something like satellite or direct TV or something of that nature. You look at those types of things and you say, this isn't good enough anymore. And that's the thing. The more that you taste, feel, smell, grab hold of in your mind the glories of eternity, you look at the things of this earth and you just say to yourself, that's not good enough. 
I want more. And that's what hope does. It's a future-looking glass to the glories that are to come. And the more that you stare down that pipe, the more you feed faith and love in your life. This is what Jesus' gospel does. It changes us. Jesus' gospel is our hope. But Paul's going to move on to say it's also the hope of the world. Why? Because Jesus is the hope of the world. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now this gospel message, William Tyndale defined the word gospel like this, evangelion, uh, the word we use for gospel, a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now, he wrote these words in 1525. He would later on seal these words with his own blood. And I think that's an ironic thing. I mean, here you have a message that's meant to produce happiness, and it does, but it can also produce hatred. The gospel means good news. It's not a law. It's not a demand from God that you uh, somehow have to earn your way to him. It's an announcement declaring that Jesus has paid for your sins upon the cross. It's like receiving that telephone call that you've been waiting for. I remember when I was in college and I was dating Katie, and every time I would see her number come up on my phone, I would get so excited and I would quickly grab the phone, pick it up, and answer that call. That is what kind of good news we're talking about here. The gospel is a message that is both proclaimed and believed. It's the whole point of the Bible. You start from the book of Genesis and you make your way to the book of Malachi and it all points forward to Jesus Christ. You get into the book of Acts and you make uh, your way to the book of Revelation. It all points back to the person of Jesus Christ and forward to the future realities of the consummation of the gospel. This is the whole point of the Bible. It's also a word of truth, meaning that it's a message with specific content. That when a person understands this specific content, they're made right with God. Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, gives the essential message of the gospel. He says, God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God, with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now here's the deal with this gospel. Many of the people living in Paul's day would not have called the advance of the gospel a raging success. You see, the church wasn't necessarily taking the world by storm. Uh, Jewish historian Josephus penning uh, his letter or his books on the Jewish wars barely mentions Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus, the only reason he really mentions the Christians is because Nero was trying to use them as a scapegoat. So the world didn't look at the gospel and see much uh, power or uh, substance to it, but Paul saw something much different. 
Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he saw this power in the gospel in two ways. He saw that the gospel is powerful because it is effective in the whole world. And when I say effective in the world, I don't mean that everyone who hears it believes it. Scripture and experience would tell us this. What I mean is that the gospel produces life change across boundaries all over the world. So in Paul's day, he's seeing it take root in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, this little dreamy town called Colossae. He's seeing it have effect with rich and poor. He's seeing it have effect with Jew and Greek. He's seeing it with men and women. He's seeing that the gospel is effective, that it's setting out and that it's bearing fruit across all of these different boundaries. And the gospel is effective because it's the will of God for it to go forth and it meets our deepest need to be made right with God. The second thing that he saw powerful in the gospel is that the gospel spreads through Epaphrasis. There's no gurus or special classes of religious types needed. God is pleased for his message of joy, hope, salvation, and eternity to spread through everyday, ordinary people like Epaphras and you. You see, Epaphras was likely either in business when he went to Ephesus or coming to fulfill some religious obligation to a pagan temple. He'd heard of this bold guy named Paul. And Paul was telling people that they could be made right with God, that even though they had sinned, if they would trust in the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins, their lives would be radically changed. And so he heard this message and he leaned his weight upon it, he grabbed hold of the object that was most desirable, and it radically changed his life. And he carried this message with him back to little run-down Colossae. And quite amazingly, he was preaching it to friends and co-workers and neighbors and maybe even enemies. Some of them were flat-out rejecting it, but some were having their lives radically changed. Are you still holding on to that brick? Are you still praying and asking yourself, well, I don't know if God can use someone like me. God delights in using Epaphrasis. In fact, the gospel has spread around the world not just because of apostles like Paul, but because of Epaphrasis. Turn that brick in become a part of his global plan. Who is Jesus? Well, in these first eight verses, we see that Jesus is the hope of the world. People might push back on this point, but Paul is basically saying to them, scoreboard. You're like, what is scoreboard? Well, it's kind of one of those things you had to be there to experience a couple of weeks ago at a staff cookout, Josh, Justin, Laura, Kolorig, and I were playing competitive full contact winner takes all game of Can Jam. You can put the picture up so they can see what it is. I mean, it's intense. And did I mention that we're a little bit competitive? Now, 
I may or may not talk a lot of smack while I'm playing games, and I may or may not back up none of the smack that I talk. In fact, Justin and I would be uh, playing this game with intensity, and every time that we'd score a point, we'd celebrate uh, in a very spirit-led way. And, and as we were celebrating, Josh would yell across to us, scoreboard, meaning, why don't you take a look at the score? You guys aren't doing that great of a job. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, scoreboard. If you don't think the gospel is powerful, if you don't believe Jesus is the hope of the world, just watch the gospel in action. 